yeah, so let's get started and we'll pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for bringing us here today. We thank you so much for this chance to look into your word and to study, to think, to um, wonder at all these things that have happened and on all these things that you want us to consider and learn from. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work in us. We thank you so much for Kim and the work that she's put into this. And we pray that you would bless her, that you would speak through her, and that you would use her words to um, teach us today and draw us closer to you. We pray that you bless the kids downstairs and the teachers. We thank you for them. We pray that you bless our small group time as well and that our conversation will be glorifying to you and encouraging to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Is that okay? Can people hear me? Okay. Um, so I feel like I get up here every year and say, I really struggled to prepare this year. Uh, and yeah, I don't know why I thought the first week in January would be a good week to do. Um, so of course, I didn't get much done over the holidays. Um, and then I'll just give you a brief glimpse of my last three days. Sunday night, we find out that the kids are not going back to school because they were having staffing issues. Uh, so Monday was going to be my day, my power through day. And I ended up with all five kids at home, nothing to do because even my college student is starting virtual. Um, they didn't even have any virtual school on Monday. So they were just hanging out with me. Not to mention we had scheduled someone to start painting in our house. Um, not just anywhere, but the stairway and the upstairs hallway where my kids are now walking through a thousand times a day. Um, then I got a call Monday afternoon that my dad fell um, and had to go for a CAT scan. And I've been spending Tuesdays with him so that my mom can go to work. And I thought, well, maybe I can skip this Tuesday, but not after that. So uh, I spent the time with him yesterday. He's fine. The Lord has protected him through many falls, which we're grateful for. Um, but even with all of this, and I can tell you Sunday night, I was feeling very uncomfortable with where my study was at. Um, you know, even with all of this yesterday at about 11 in the morning, I texted Justin and I said, I'm done and I feel good about it. Uh, and that's a text he has never gotten for me in all the years I've been preparing, uh, which I think makes both of, both of us a little nervous. <laughs> um, but one of the, the things that kind of just reinforced to me is that God is sovereign over all these things. And we really see this theme throughout this chapter. Uh, and he really has provided for me. He knew all of these things were going to be coming up and, and getting in my way. And yet um, he provided and his Holy Spirit came through when I needed it. And I don't know why I ever doubt it. But um, yeah, so hopefully you'll be blessed by what I shared today. Um, so today I'm going to introduce you David. We finally get to David, uh, the beloved of God. That's what his name means. And he's mentioned over a thousand times in the Bible, which is more than any other human. Jesus is even referred to as the son of David, which is a messianic title um, that emphasizes his royal origin. So when I was asked about 
teaching this year, I was given two passages to consider. The one was today's passage and the other one was David and Goliath. So I asked my 11-year-old what he thought I would do, should do, assuming he would say David and Goliath, right? It's an exciting and action-packed story, and everyone loves to see the little guy win. But immediately, without hesitation, Josh told me he thought I should do today's passage. And when I asked him why, he said, because he thinks it's really important for people to know that God sees us differently than the world sees us. Josh, who is my youngest of five, and he's one of the smallest in his class. This year, he was told that he was too small, too young, and too slow to be on the school soccer team. He thought it was really important for all of you and for me to know that God doesn't see us the way that the world sees us. Um, just like Josh, oftentimes I feel like I don't um, stack up to the world's standards. But I serve a God whose ways are higher than the world's ways and whose thoughts are better than the world's thoughts. And I serve a God who uses the foolish and insignificant things of the world to do great things. And I serve a God who took the stone that the builders rejected and made it his cornerstone. So last night at the end of my talk, I gave five points that I feel like I want to give them in the beginning. Um, so you can think about these as I'm talking. So the first point is um, that God, he's sovereign over people and principalities and his purposes will be accomplished. The second is that God does not see man as the world, as the world sees man. We look at the outward, but God looks at our hearts. The third is that God desires a humble and obedient heart. Fourth point is God has called us to be light in a dark world and to point people to Jesus. And then the last one is that God's kingdom is an upside down kingdom where weakness is strength and suffering brings salvation, where death is life and where the foolish things of the world are wise to God. I know that was a lot of information. I'll try to unpack it. So back in chapter 12, in Samuel's farewell address, he tells the people, behold, here is the king that you chose regarding Saul. And we all know how that turned out. So this time, God is going to choose a better king for Israel. God had already set his plan in motion in chapter 13 when Samuel told Saul, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be the prince over his people. In a lot of ways, David becoming king is a classic Cinderella story. David is the underdog, the marginalized, the one that's left to tend the flock while everybody else goes to the ball. And we're left wondering who's going to get the glass slipper. The sons of Jesse parade in front of Samuel. But in the end, the one that's chosen isn't even on their radar. Who doesn't love a story like that? A story that gives us hope that anything's possible that maybe even we stand the chance of being the hero. But Ron Lutz always says there's only one hero in the Bible. And even as we start this journey into the life and the reign of David, we find that God is the main character and that everything points us to Jesus, our hero. So when we open the scene on chapter 16, we find Samuel, retired in Ramah, resolved not to appear in public anymore. And he told Saul that at the end of chapter 15. 
Samuel is grieving over Saul, the rejected king. He has invested a lot of time and a lot of effort into Saul, and he has a relationship with Saul. Samuel is sorrowful over Saul's rebellion and rejection of God's law. And he's worried about the future of Israel. When he had anointed Saul, he warned Israel, behold, the king whom you have chosen for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandments of the Lord. And if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord and you rebel against his commandments, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Would Israel now fall into despair since Saul had been rejected as king? It is right for Samuel to be brokenhearted over God being rejected by the people that he loves. It's right to mourn over the sins of brothers and sisters in Christ and to have sorrow over the unbelief in churches or the disregard for God's law by Christian leaders. And it is good to petition God on their behalf, as Samuel promised to do for Saul. We would all do well to spend more time before the Lord lamenting over the brokenness of the world and our own sinful hearts. But in the midst of his grief, God confronts Samuel. Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? God does not allow Samuel to dwell in his sorrow. The time for mourning is over and God is resolute. He has come to offer hope and a new beginning. When Israel pleaded for a king, they were rejecting the Lord as their king. God gave them a human king after their own desire, but God was still on the throne He was crowning who he pleased as he pleased. And we don't have to fear for the future when we know that God is the ruler over all things. In some unlikely place, God is raising up leaders for his people. He's done it throughout the ages and he's doing it now. All authorities are subject to God and he can use both good leaders and bad leaders alike to do his will. The people had chosen for themselves a king in Saul And that had failed. So now God will provide a king for them, a man after his own heart. God tells Samuel, get up, fill your horn with oil. I provided for myself a king in Bethlehem. This presents a problem for Saul, for Samuel, because a trip like this would definitely be noticed by Saul. And if Saul hears that Samuel, God's prophet and king anointer, is going to Bethlehem, it might be seen as a threat to his kingship. And Samuel fears that he would be killed. As Tim Chester put it, declaring someone to be king when the current king still reigns is not going to go down well. Not only that, but the road from Ramah to Bethlehem went directly through Gibeah, which is where Saul lived. But God does not dismiss Samuel's fears. He had already had a plan in place to calm any of his concerns. God tells Samuel to take a heifer with him to sacrifice. It was commonplace for a prophet or a judge to perform sacrifices for peace, for thanksgiving, for atonement. And now, since Saul had been anointed, it had become the proper thing to do when anointing a king. So Samuel taking an offering to Bethlehem would not have been seen as suspicious among any of Saul's spies. And it was also a necessary part of his mission. So when he arrives in Bethlehem's Bethlehem, the elders of the town come out trembling, obviously very fearful, of what a visit from Samuel, God's prophet, means to them. 
was he coming to bring judgment on them? Just the last chapter, Samuel killed Agag, the king of the Amalekites, and hacked him up into pieces. I'm sure that his reputation had preceded him. Not to mention his recent falling out with Saul. If he did come in peace, does that that now put the people of Bethlehem at odds with Saul? Samuel reassures them that he comes in peace. And he tells the men to go and perform their ritual cleaning for the sacrifice. And then Samuel personally invites Jesse and his sons to join him. Not much is said about Jesse in these verses. And a lot of the commentators think that was intentional so that they could emphasize the ordinariness of David. But Jesse is the only son of Obed and the grandson of Ruth and Boaz, which is another Bible story of God's extraordinary provision for and through ordinary people. uh, Jesse is from the tribe of Judah, which is the line through which God promised his savior. And he's probably a fairly wealthy man when you consider the inheritance that he had gotten. He has eight sons, seven of which come to the sacrifice, and the youngest is left in the fields tending the sheep. Samuel awaits Jesse's arrival with his seven strong and handsome sons, and immediately he's drawn to Eliab, the oldest, tallest, most impressive looking of the bunch. Surely this is the Lord's anointed. But God interjects with what several commentators called the pivotal verse of all of First and Second Samuel. And as Robert Bergen says, the Lord utters one of the most important statements in all of scripture regarding divine concerns and human capacities. God says to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord makes it clear to us that he is the only one with the ability to observe and judge a person's heart, his innermost thoughts, feelings, and intentions. Left to Samuel, he would have chosen a carbon copy of Saul, tall, strong, handsome. But did he love the Lord? Samuel was judging Eliab worthy based on his position and his appearance. Eliab is the firstborn, and it's a reasonable assumption on Samuel's part that he would be the choice, considering how the Jewish world regarded the oldest son. Honor, inheritance, responsibility was all given to the oldest, but God doesn't work that way. In fact, God seems to have a tenderness towards the younger brother. He chose Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau, Joseph over his brothers, Moses over Aaron, and now he'll choose the younger son again. Eliab is tall and strong and he looks like a king, which is the same mistake that Israel made with their first king. Saul looked the part. He was literally heads and shoulders above everyone else. But he didn't have the heart that a king of the Lord should have. God reminds Samuel, Your natural inclination is to judge on the outward appearance, but I can judge the heart that you can't see. And aren't we all guilty of that? What looks good is not always what's best for us. Humans have been blinded by what's on the outside since the very beginning. The very origin of sin was based on what Eve thought looked good. It was a delight delight to her eyes, even when she had been instructed by the Lord that it wasn't good for her. Eve was deceived by a cunning snake and by what her eyes saw. And not much has changed. Instead, we should be seeking the Lord 
and asking to see what he sees when he looks at others. So Samuel moves on to the next son and the next until he gets down to number seven, and that's still not the one. Samuel, knowing that the Lord's anointed is among Jesse's sons, asks him, do you have any more? And Jesse responds with just the baby, but he's out in the field with the sheep. Samuel, knowing where it's going, says, we'll wait, and we're not going to eat anything until he gets here. So Jesse goes out and sends somebody to fetch him. There is a lot of significance behind the fact that Jesse's youngest son, who's probably between the age of 10 and 15, is not getting an invitation to the sacrifice. Some sources suggest that it was simply they needed somebody to tend the sheep. But if the other seven sons were able to go, it's reasonable to assume that they had servants to take on their responsibilities while they were there. And the same would have been true for the youngest brother. It's also possible that David didn't want to go to the sacrifice. Maybe it was too long or too boring for him. But I have a hard time believing this when you consider the Lord's view of David. God knows David loves him. Even at such a young age, he has a heart for the Lord. Wouldn't he be overjoyed to be invited by God's prophet to a sacrifice and a feast in honor of his Lord? What I think is a bigger possibility is that maybe this younger brother was seen as a nuisance, a distraction, better left in the field singing his songs to the sheep than annoying his fathers and his brothers. One pastor I listened to made a point out of the fact that David's name means beloved. He's the youngest of eight boys. Some of the older brothers' names mean God is my father, my father is noble, and one means desolation. I'd really hate to be that guy. (laughs) But in this, is this another case of the baby being the favorite or maybe a mama's boy? That usually doesn't go over well with older siblings. But regardless of why he was excluded, the fact remains that he had gone unacknowledged by Jesse. But God sees him and God has a hold of David's heart. Listen to some of these verses from Psalms 8 and 19, which David wrote. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them and human beings that you care for him? And the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. More to be desired are they than gold. Declare me innocent from my hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. God had David's heart. He had never had Saul's heart. David is in all of the care that God shows for us, and he was delighted to follow his law. He even asks God to forgive him for the sins that he doesn't know he's committed and to protect him from presumptuous sin, which is something that Samuel had actually accused Saul of in his farewell address. The sin of presumption is taking things for granted. It's an expectation that God will forgive, even when you're not remorseful. As one theologian put it, it's not a clever idea to presume the mercy of God. David is asking for humility. He's praying for God to give him a repentant heart. And God knew the struggles that were ahead for David with Saul being removed from the kingship and still fighting to hold on to it. 
He knew the suffering and the wandering and the trials that laid ahead for a new king. He also knew the sins that David would commit and the painful consequences of them. What kind of man could endure that? Only a man that had completely trusted the Lord. Someone who possessed humility and meekness and who would fully submit to the Lord's will for his life. So David is brought in from the field and he's described as being ruddy which means either he had a fair complexion or red hair or maybe both. But it was something that had set him apart from his brothers, other than the fact that he was a lot smaller than them. It also said he had beautiful eyes and was handsome, which is a pleasing description, but completely irrelevant because it was the heart, his heart for the Lord that had distinguished him from the other brothers. God says to Samuel, arise, anoint him. This is the one. Samuel anoints him right there in the presence of all of his brothers. And finally, once he is anointed and the Holy Spirit rushes upon him, this small shepherd boy is finally called by his name, David. It says the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, which is in contrast to when the spirit of the Lord rushed upon Saul, but gave no indication of how long. I think it's important to note that the anointing of David was not an explicit sign to anybody around him that he would be the next king. The only other king that had been anointed was Saul, and that was done in private, just him and Samuel. Anointing in the Bible was a symbolic act consecrating someone for the service to the Lord, priest, prophet, or king. It's unclear if anyone besides Samuel knew that God was choosing David to be the next king. It's no coincidence if some of these verses cause you to think of another unlikely king. From Matthew, it says, Behold, the heavens were open to Jesus, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And a voice from heaven said, said, This is my son, with whom I am well pleased. David arrives in his dirty work clothes, smelling like a sheep. He doesn't really look the part of a king, but neither did Jesus. He was a helpless baby. Wrapped in scraps in a manger, he was the son of a carpenter. He was rejected in his hometown, mocked by his family, hated by the religious leaders. He was the most unlikely king. He came in weakness, faced immense suffering, and showed great humility. All the things that humans would not associate with a king. Two weeks ago, Bob Hudson preached about this idea of Jesus and weakness. I think a lot of us are very uncomfortable thinking about Jesus as weak, but listen to these verses in Philippians. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Jesus voluntarily gave up all his power to do his father's will. The victim on the cross is the victor over death. This is why Paul in 2 Corinthians rejoices when God tells him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul is content with his weaknesses, the insults, the hardship, the persecution that he faces. Because when he is weak, then he is strong in Christ. 
God sees the same humility in David and a willingness to be used to do the Lord's will. And God delights in accomplishing his will in ways that astonish human beings. The final section of chapter 16 starts really starts at verse 13. It says, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. It's a tale of two kings. The transfer of power has occurred. It would be another 15 years before David is crowned king of Israel. But the Lord's spirit was with him and no longer with Saul. David was on the rise and Saul was on a sharp decline. I read a lot of commentaries about verse 14. It's difficult to reconcile this idea that God would send a harmful spirit to torment Saul. First, I think it's important to make a distinction distinction between what God allows and what God commands. What several commentators believe and what makes the most sense to me was summed up well by Matthew Henry. Saul, having forsaken God in his duty, God, in a way of righteous judgment, withdrew from him those assistances of the good spirit with which he had been directed, animated, and encouraged. Saul lost all his good qualities. This was the effect of him rejecting God and in evidence of his being rejected by him. Now God took his mercy from Saul. If God and his grace do not rule us, then sin and Satan will have possession of us. The devil, by divine permission, troubled and terrified Saul. God had lifted his spirit. He had lifted his hand of protection off of Saul. And in essence, Saul was given over to his simple ways. Obedience to God is the path of life and blessing. And Saul's repeated disobedience had led him down a path of destruction and judgment and ultimately death. Undoubtedly, Saul never realized the price that he would pay when the spirit of the Lord departed from him. In the Old Testament, the Lord's spirit can be a transient thing. It comes and it goes. But in the New Testament at Pentecost, the Lord's spirit comes to dwell in believers. The Holy Spirit has a continual presence in Christians. We do not have to fear that the Holy Spirit will depart from us. What a comforting thought that is. It was evident to everyone around Saul that he was suffering. And some of his servants suggested he find a skilled musician to calm him. This was a well-known remedy for troubled souls throughout the ages. I know that listening worship to worship music can be very soothing to my soul um, when I'm when I'm not in a great place. <laughs> uh, but again, Matthew Henry makes a really poignant statement about this section. He says that Saul is distempered and his, his servants have the honesty and the courage to tell him and they urge him to find relief in music. But how much better friends would they have been if they had advised him to make his peace with God by true repentance? to send for Samuel and to pray with him, to intercede with God for him. How much better would it it have been to care for his soul rather than simply delighting his senses? Sisters, how often do we try to comfort and console in fleshly ways rather than pointing our friends and ourselves to Jesus? This was very convicting for me. 
I've become really good at giving temporary solutions for COVID, politics, social justice, marriage, parenting, and the list goes on. But all my thoughts are fleeting and not one of them is going to bring healing or salvation. Only Jesus can give us life and restoration. Lord, I pray that we would share the good news more often than we share our opinions. So one of Saul's well-meaning servants says that he knows a man who's a great musician, courageous, a mighty warrior, eloquent, a man of high character, handsome, and above all else, the Lord was with him. Of course, we know that he's talking about David. So in God's providence, David goes before the king and is introduced to the court. He's put in exactly the right place at the right time at the request of the king under no false pretenses. And it says that Saul loved David. Saul chooses the same man that God chose. And Saul sees the same qualities in David that the Lord sees. David comes to comfort Saul with his music, but he ends up staying and becoming his armor bearer, his right-hand man. Unwittingly, Saul becomes dependent on the one that is designated to succeed him. And David gets a front row seat to the government that he will one day rule. Apparently, after his anointing, David went back to the fields with the sheep. And although there were no outward signs of God's intentions towards him, there was no hiding the effect that God's spirit was having in David. Even in, just, in obscurity, David's light was shining. Jesus says, I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So let your light shine before others, that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We are called to be light in a dark world. And David was called by the Lord to minister to Saul in his time of need. His reign as the shepherd king had begun. He tends his flocks like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads and he points us to Jesus, the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. You pray with me. I'm going to pray um, using verses from Psalm 8 and Psalm 19. I know I didn't talk about them much in here, but we'll pray it. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When we consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. What is mankind that you are mindful of us, Lord? Human beings that you care for us. You have made us a little lower than the angels and crowned us with glory and honor. You made us rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under our feet. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, sweeter than honey. The heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of your hands. Lord, our Lord, our rock and our redeemer, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Amen.